It's Monday the 25th of October 2021. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. My guest this week is Darren Adam, a presenter from, from LBC, Britain's longest-running commercial radio station that brings news and talk to the whole of the UK. He's also a long-standing Icelandophile um, with his finger on the pulse when it comes to what's going on in the news up here in the North Atlantic. Uh, welcome to you. No pressure then. Hello, no pressure at all. Hi. Good to see you again. Um, in the week, this in the news this week, I should say, uh, the government has put conditions in place for the sale of Mila, the telecommunications infrastructure company, to Ardian, which is an international investment fund based in Paris, for 78 billion kroners. The sale was discussed by the National Security Council, but Ardian promises it is a very long-term investor that plans to hold Mila for decades and that it will not sell the company to Russia or China. The investigation into vote counting and recounting in the Northwest Iceland constituency continues with plenty of headlines, but little indication of which way things will go in the end. Four weeks into coalition talks on a related subject. There's also no sign of a new government yet, but this is not surprising, according to one expert. He says that given the old government is still operational and that the same parties are likely to continue anyway... Um, that is perfectly acceptable. The risk, he says, though, is that such a broad coalition can tend to sweep big issues under the carpet for the first four-year term, but that just will not fly for the second year, uh, the second term. Um, let's see where that goes. Four in five children in Iceland do not get enough exercise, new research suggests, and sports classes at schools are really important in making sure the kids get moving at least just a little bit three days a week. Major repairs to the sewage transport system means people are being advised to steer clear of the sea and beaches in the North Reykjavik area for about three weeks, during which time untreated sewage from tens of thousands of homes is entering the sea. The COVID-19 infection rate has been creeping up again since mid-September, but stress on hospitals has so far not increased. Um, Anti-contagion restrictions were largely dropped on Wednesday and will be completely removed in mid-November as long as the healthcare system is still coping. And finally, research on tree rings in Canada has vindicated the sagas of the Icelanders in one very intriguing and significant way. Where would you like to begin? I think it has to be COVID, doesn't it? Because we've been here in Iceland on this trip for about nine nine days now, I think, and it doesn't really feel as if there are any significant restrictions in place at all at the moment. So plainly what is being lifted is very much at the outer edge of the restrictions with which you've been living. We've attended a couple of events. We went to see Björk at Harpa mm-hmm. um, on uh, Sunday night and there didn't appear to be anything getting in the way of people assembling in the way that they would have done before would even heard of the then novel coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, does it feel to you as if these restrictions when they are lifted is going to fundamentally change anything or, or not? The main thing, I think, is obviously very large events, um, stadium concerts, not that we have them at this time of year, um, and then the bars staying open until the time that they would normally stay open till. um, Mm. Those are the main things. I think what happened on Wednesday is we went from a 500-person assembly limit to 2,000. Okay. Which is is a big difference, yeah, but yeah, yeah. makes absolutely no difference from day to day to most people. Yes, yes. Um, And the face mask rule changed. Okay, so that mandate's been in place and that will be lifted as well. And 
looking at the COVID numbers in Iceland, I remember exactly one year ago we were planning to be here and, and Iceland was going through a, a, a second or third wave, quite a significant one. Of course, vaccination had not yet been invented at that point and mm. we decided not to come because if we had travelled to Iceland a year ago, we would have been compelled to isolate for five days. Everything was closed, the swimming pools were closed and that seems to be, you know, if that if that happens in Iceland, everything shuts down pretty much, doesn't it? So it feels like a very different place to where Iceland was a year ago. And looking again at the COVID numbers, hospitalizations are very low, deaths are very low, even if the case numbers are starting to trend up a little bit. So it seems to me like it feels like the right kind of time to lift these restrictions. I wonder whether you think there's been any sort of kickback against that or pushback? Mm, not really. Like public kickback, yeah. not that I've noticed. No, yeah. the, the the main, if anything, has been the other way, people saying that we should have removed all of them at the same time. Okay. Um, but even that's quite quiet. I think people are, are still quite trusting of the authorities in this regard mm -hmm. because they've proved themselves to be mostly at least working p with scientific uh, data as their as their main thing and, yes. and leaving politics to one side. Yeah, well, certainly from my perspective in the UK, I will be beyond delighted to see the back of this thing. <laughs> I, I, I plan to have a bonfire of my remaining face masks once it becomes safe to stop using them altogether. I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but it feels like a much better place than than we were in 12 months ago, for sure. So you're talking about you arrive in Iceland and it feels yes. like there's almost no restrictions in place, but you've come from a place where there are literally no restrictions in place. So how, well, to do, an how extent, does it feel because, different here? Well, in different parts of the UK, there are different sets of rules. So in Scotland, for example, uh, the mask mandate is still in place. That's been lifted in other parts of the country, including England, I'm in London a lot of the time. I still habitually wear the mask if I go to the supermarket or go to any sort of gathering other than work, to be honest, which I don't tend to do terribly much these days anyway. But I'm still relatively happy to wear a mask as a sign of respect to other people as much as anything else. It's a sign that you are conscious that you might yet pose a risk to another human being and that you're doing something polite in terms of wearing the mask. So much as I hate wearing them, I think there is still a a signalling purpose as much as anything else. And it's surprising to see them not being used here. I like not seeing them. Mm. I took some face masks with me from the UK and they're still sitting in the Airbnb and their packet unopened. Mm. <laughs> I've not had cause, it seems, to use them yet here in Iceland. I wonder if that's a cultural thing. Maybe. Um, because for the huge majority of people, it wasn't a problem wearing the face mask when we had to. Very little in the way of complaints. You heard the odd headline here and there about someone yep. being angry about it, but mostly it was fine. Uh, then the restriction was removed. They were no longer compulsory. I haven't seen a single one since mm. that mm. same day. Uh, yeah, so. I, the, the use of them in the UK has declined when the restriction was lifted. In fact, I noticed on the very day that the restriction was lifted in, in one of the local supermarkets, one of the Tesco's in London... <laughs> straw poll, maybe 80% of people were still wearing them. That has certainly declined. And I think as people will take their lead from politicians, they will take mm. their leads from government, even if they don't particularly like that government. And, and you know, if, if, if it becomes possible to not wear them, then ultimately people will decide not to wear them, I guess. Mm. Now, Iceland was the first of the Nordic countries to remove all restrictions mm. back in July. That lasted barely a couple of weeks yes. um, because yes. the, the numbers went up very rapidly. Uh, into the biggest wave that we've had so far. How and why can it be different this time, do you think? Well, vaccination 
everywhere has made such a substantial difference in, in not breaking but severing that link between the number of cases and hospitalizations and deaths. And if Iceland is anything like any other country, the predominant opinion seems to be that this will genuinely become something like the flu, like a cold. And you've had people saying this for 18 months. Most of them are crazy, of course. <laughs> the ones who've been saying COVID is just a cold, it's nothing to worry about. This is a terrible disease that has claimed millions of lives around mm. the world and will continue to do so. But vaccination, it seems to me, is turning most of those cases into things which are unpleasant rather than fatal. So if we can turn COVID through vaccination into something that feels like a cold, even a bad cold, then it becomes something with which we can live. And maybe that's what's happening here. I hope it's what's happening here. I hope it's what's happening everywhere. Mm, absolutely. Okay. Uh, anything else to add or should we move on? I'd like to move on to the election, which is, yes. as a political geek in the UK and as an Icelandophile, this is a perfect story for me. I find it absolutely fascinating. The very first time we came to Iceland in 1998... We stayed in Hotel Borgenes. Ah. And I never imagined then that, what, 25 years later nearly, it would be at the heart of what appears to have the makings of some kind of scandal, at least. I don't know how scandalous it feels, but this idea that the ballot boxes in the Northwest constituency were left um, unchecked or unsealed, rather, in, in the dining room of that hotel... It's a it's a fascinating story, and yet there doesn't seem to be evidence of 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 deliberate wrongdoing. It seems to just be carelessness and sloppiness at this stage. Mm. Um, I'm I'm not sure how that would be treated in in other countries, but to me, what this says is this: the system works. That there was a perceived breach of protocol. It was it was thought that something had gone wrong with the electoral process. And the system kicked in to sort of try to remedy that and to take it seriously. So I think other countries might have a lot to learn here. You know, a mistake a mistake was made and the process is now starting to work to remedy that mistake, it seems. Mm, yeah. Um, of course, you could say that it, there are so many uncertainty factors in this that it's difficult to make one conclusion. Mm. That is certainly one possible conclusion, but... I think it's interesting as well that that some of those involved, as I understand it, uh, maybe maybe the situation has changed in the last day, but some of those involved have been offered the chance to pay a fine, mm. in, in which case everything goes away for them. And on, I think in, on the criminal police on, investigation, yes, yes, yes. and yeah. the alternative to that alternative to that, I think, would be a suspended prison sentence. So there is a recognition that somebody has to pay somewhere, although the committee, I believe. Uh, responsible for this, they don't believe there has been any criminal uh, wrongdoing, even even negligence at this mm. stage. But it, it's a good conversation to have. The fact that it's happening, the fact that there has been a recognition that that something has gone wrong, even if it's not at a criminal level, is really important. I think. And I guess the next question is: Does the Northwest constituency vote again? Does that change fundamentally the outcome of the election? I'm not sure ar arithmetically that it does. Well, if they voted again, it yeah. could do. Yes. I mean, at the moment, the main question, to start with at least, was are we going to let this sec this recount count? Is that going to be the result mm. as it stands now? Or will we maybe go back to the, the original count, the first one? The committee in charge of the election in the North West don't even agree on that. Mm. Uh, mm. Which of the two counts should, should count, should we say? Um, and then the third option was kind of a little bit of an outlier. Re vote again. Yeah. Uh, and that's now seeming a little bit more likely 
um, that that could be forced, and then everything's up for grabs. Well, all the whole, sorts of crazy things can happen. Different. Yeah, when when people are asked to vote again for whatever reason, I can think of examples in the UK. They tend not to like it. I can think of one very close election in 1997, part of the general election, where um, a candidate had a very similar name to another candidate. And the candidate who came second felt that he'd been cheated because some of those votes had gone to, to, that, to that person. And so anyway, he insisted upon uh, that, uh, that vote being uh, redone, essentially, a few weeks after the general election. And, mm. and he ended up losing by about 22,000 votes in the end because people were so aggrieved at the idea that they had to go and vote again because of a mistake that had been made. So, yeah, if that happens in the Northwest constituency and people feel aggrieved that they've had to be dragged back out to the ballot box, then, yeah, that, I think, could fundamentally change the result uh, dramatically. Mm. But, but then, it, of course, in this case, they're not aggrieved against any candidate or party specifically. No, no. And they will be looking at the result and the the makeup of parliament across the whole country and thinking, mm. well, is this what I really want? Oh, maybe not. Yes. I'll well, yeah, and, and, and the, the voters in the Northwest constituency would then have a very great deal of, of power, wouldn't they, to, to change the result? Absolutely. But as you said in the introduction, um, the makeup of the government is likely to be similar even though some parties have gone up and some parties have gone down. I saw some polling on, on Katrin, on the, the Prime Minister, suggesting that even though her party, I think, lost three seats overall, she is still by far the most popular choice for a Prime Minister. So even though she leads a party which I think is third or fourth in the number of seats, third, yeah. third in the number of seats, she is still the very, very popular choice mm. as, as the leader of the, the country. Uh no exception, or perhaps even especially among the voters of the other two parties in the government. Why is that? She is seen as a uniting force, I think. She is a nice person. She's the most trusted yes. single politician in Iceland. Polls reveal that. Um, yeah. And, yeah, maybe her effect on the government has been seen to be positive, yes. even if not people don't always agree with her party's politics. It's a strange thing to view through the prism of, of a British general election or, or British politics. If you want a particular person to be prime minister, then in almost all circumstances, you will vote for the party led by that individual. We don't have a presidential system, but it sometimes feels like we do. Mm. It's it's really interesting that here you might vote for a, a party that isn't led by the person that you want to be prime minister, or indeed that that happens quite a lot. Or, as well as that, though, how, how important is that? If you're voting for a party because you support their policies and you agree with them... Who you want to be prime minister isn't necessarily the biggest question, mm. and and after the election, then you're asked this question, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, Catherine, good, yeah, like her." But if it had have ended differently, maybe that wouldn't have been so high on people's agendas. Yes. And what is the time frame on this then? When is there going to be a definitive election result, and and when will the issues in the northwest be dealt with? We don't know. We don't know. No, um, the preparatory committee that is look of Althingi that is looking into the mm. irregularities in the Northwest. They're meeting multiple times per week and they don't know when their conclusion will be. And their conclusion isn't the end of it. <clears throat> then it goes to the actual committee because mm -hmm. this is the preparatory committee. It's very confusing. Um, um, they still hope that Parliament will sit for the first time in early November. Okay. Um, but that's not to say we'll have a government by then. No. <laughs> well, didn't Belgium face, uh, famously not have a government for eight months? Longer than that, longer wasn't it? Like than 17 that. months or something. Was it 17 it months? Was, maybe. Was it, longer it was the longest than, yeah. in the world, yeah. anyway. 
and uh, the sky didn't seem to fall in over Brussels. So no. anyway. Well, it, it, I mean, in this case, the, the caretaker government is the old government and they're still working yes. well together. Yes. So there isn't a time pressure in that regard. Yeah. And especially if it's going to be the same people anyway. Hmm. By and large. Yes. So, yeah, there, there are, as I said in the introduction, many headlines about this and, and very little actual mm. concrete mm. new information coming forward, mm. which is Well, we'll see. Interesting. I, I'm interested as well in something which is very distant in history that you touched on at the start, the vindication, I guess, of the sagas or mm -hmm. some of the sagas through yeah. the use of tree rings and the study of tree rings. So, so basically this is about there now being evidence, not just that some of the sagas have been vindicated, but that Vikings essentially made their way further west even than Greenland and spent longer further west than Greenland that was than was ever um, uh, suspected. And I've always been fascinated by the, by the fact that Greenland, I think, had one Viking settlement, Bratelheath, uh, from, from memory, uh, in the south. And it, it, the, the circumstances of its abandonment were never fully understood. Mm. And also why there weren't more settlements and why the Vikings didn't spend more time in Greenland because on the face of it, it seems to have been perfect for them or would have been perfect. But what this tree ring evidence shows is that the Vikings made their way further west and spent more time there. Uh, I, I'm not a tree scientist. I can't even remember what the word is for tree scientist. Can you think of it? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Arboreal specialist. But anyway, yeah. so I'm, I'm going to read from your excellent website here for the details on this. Uh, a very large solar storm in 992 meant that the growth rings within the tree trunks in 993 are easily identified. So they're able to go back a thousand years, more than a thousand years, yeah. and tell to within 12 months uh, what was happening. They can, they can date these trees and they can, they can extrapolate from that the presence of Vikings in places where they were previously not thought to have spent much time. Mm. Uh, this place, I think, Lance or Meadows, I'm not sure how, exactly how to pronounce it, in, in northern Newfoundland, has been the site of Viking uh, archaeology for a long time. And it's kind of almost certain that they were there, but it wasn't quite known precisely when mm. or how long they spent there. And corroborating the, the sagas was difficult until yes. now. Yes. And, and they're also looking at the marks in the wood. It was cut with steel saws, um, which were... Viking, or at least European of design, mm -hmm. and not Native American. So do, do you think it gives more credibility to other sagas? Or, it could do. Or the idea that the sagas were actually fairly accurate historical documents? Mm. I think that's one of the more interesting points about this, is that they're presented as kind of a blend between fiction and mm. fact, mm. and the more factual elements come out, and then we can say, actually, yeah, that did mm. happen. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's incredible to be able to use hard science to say that stuff that was written down a thousand years ago is actually true, and mm. here's why. Yeah. And I, I wasn't quite in, sure about the, the, the other part of that story, but they said that there's also very strong evidence that they went further south along the coast uh, into yeah. the United States, potentially looking for places to settle, but that didn't happen. No, that um, we know of. That we know of, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and... Well, there isn't a Manhattan saga, is there? <laughs> well... <laughs> Not a Viking one, anyway. Um, and, the, yeah, they, they had thought that the Vikings went to North America just before and just after the millennium. Yeah. Now it looks like it was a bit later than that, but uh, but that they were there longer and mm. had more of a presence mm. than, than previously thought, which is interesting. Yes. And, of course, in northern Newfoundland, it gets cold in the winter, so they probably weren't there year-round. Mm. 
I'd love to visit the Icelandic settlement in Canada. Gimli. Gimli. Mm. Yeah. Um, I've I've met people who've been there from Iceland and they've visited there and I've seen photographs and it looks it looks Icelandic. It's um, extraordinary uh, to see that and it's been obviously established for a very long time mm. and it feels like this little outpost of Iceland in the middle of Manitoba, I think, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Have you yeah. been? I haven't, no. 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 I'd like to. Yeah. And that whole sort of area is, is Scandinavian in, yeah. in, in, in heritage anyway, I believe. Yes, and then down into Minnesota in the yeah. USA as well. Yeah. Yes, they've got certain elements of Icelandic culture that have been lost in Iceland. Certain cakes and um, oh, really? <laughs> greetings and things. Yeah, uh-huh. I believe. Really interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. I, what next? I was a very inactive child <laughs> at school. So was I. I. <laughs> I didn't yeah. take any form of physical exercise in adult life until I was about 37, 38, and I went to the gym for the first time. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. didn't have a clue what I was doing. But I, I took to it fairly readily and fairly quickly. And one of the reasons that I had spent 20 years or more avoiding all physical activity is that I absolutely hated it at school. I had a really bad teacher. I'm going to blame the teacher here, inevitably, but I, I just hated taking physical exercise. So when I saw that four out of five students in Iceland don't get the recommended daily amount of physical exercise, at least in years six, eight, and ten, um, I had uh, both sympathy and curiosity. I, I, sympathy and empathy for their position because I felt exactly the same, but curiosity about the way that physical education is taught in Iceland mm. and whether it is considered to be as unpleasant as I found it all of those years ago in the north of Scotland. I'd like to think that the teaching of PE has become better and less horrendous over the years. Yeah, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It um, reminds me of that Simpsons episode when they, <laughs> the, the only game on offer is bombardment. It's <laughs> throwing balls at you. Yeah. That's what it felt like for me, certainly. Um, but, one, I mean, is this is this going to be a concern, I wonder, or is this just is this just inevitable that, that, that children aren't taking as much, as much exercise as, as some scientists and some doctors would like? Good question. I mean, obviously... Inactivity is a huge problem. Obesity um, and and other things related to, to sedentary lifestyles. But I also noticed from this piece of news that they're recommending children have an hour of activity, physical activity per day. Mm. Um, you know that's quite a lot. Yeah. Certainly more than adults are recommended to have. Mm. Obviously because they're children. But um, I wonder if the climate plays a part in that. It is going to be more difficult to go outside and play, which is what we were always told as kids, you know, go outside and play. That is going to be difficult, I imagine, if you're in Isafjörður hmm. and there's uh, four feet of snow for, uh, for for five weeks or whatever it happens to be. Um, well, and, and similar... no such thing as bad weather, only bad exactly. clothing. Exactly, I do take that view. But then in the summer, of course, I imagine it's difficult to get kids to stop playing when the sun never really sets. So yeah. maybe it all evens out in the end. Mm. There's also a really strong sports movement in Iceland and like extracurricular. Most children, it seems, or certainly a majority of children are in sports clubs. They're doing football, mm-hmm. handball, basketball, you name it, in an organised fashion with mm-hmm. their local sports team. Um, and that was another thing that came out of this news was that the wealthier or, yeah, the wealthier, the family, the more physical activity the children are getting. Mm. Which seems to suggest that it is something, there's this link between the sports clubs and people paying to have these practices, yes. these activities. Um, and children of less well-off backgrounds, mm-hmm. especially immigrant backgrounds, were, were yeah. less active. Well, 
certainly we always say to friends who are expressing an interest in coming to Iceland, I used to have a Word document that I would just email out to people. I think nine people in one year asked me what it was like in Iceland and uh, if they should go and visit what they should do. And I always recommend going to the municipal swimming pools. Mm. That's not to say that the, the the bigger lagoons, shall we say, don't have their charms, but, but you know, it, it's a much, much, much cheaper way to enjoy the geothermal waters if you go to those municipal pools. And the first time we came, it was almost free, I think, in, in the late 90s. I think it was something like 250 krona to, mm. to visit the pools. That's gone up a bit, but it's still one of the most cheap things that you can do in Iceland, isn't it? A thousand krona or something to visit one of these pools. And I think for residents as well, you can get season tickets and it becomes even cheaper. So pretty much everyone, it seems, regardless of income, will have access to those amazing facilities, which exist even in the smallest of towns. Definitely. Whether you want to do the exercise once you're there or whether you want to sort of float around in a serene fashion, as I tend to do, is, uh, <laughs> is maybe a more interesting question. Mm. And that's an easier distinction to make with adults. Yes. Um, if you're a scientist, how do you record physical activity in children? Are they, are they participating in sports? Are they cycling? Or are they just acting like kids and mm. playing around the pool? Mm. I don't know. I don't no. know what the methodology was there. Um, because like you say, yeah, people, children are naturally active <clears throat> as long as they're not in front of the TV. Well, yeah. If you go to any Icelandic swimming pool at sort of midday on a Saturday, the place is heaving with children who are certainly not sitting there quietly <laughs> with their parents. They're running around and they're going up and down the flumes and they're jumping into the pools and they're swimming and they're doing all sorts of very active things. So it would be a shame if that activity was not being registered and, and measured, here by the, uh, measured here by the doctors, wouldn't it? Mm. They said a positive element of it is that the compulsory school... Um, sports lessons, I, I suppose, three of them per week are making a big difference mm. and they're, they're making sure that people are, the children are at least active three days a week. Um, and like you say, hopefully that's a positive experience <laughs> yes, and one that yes. makes people want to stay active into adulthood rather than just go into their shell and never move again. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and I can or, at, or at least for 20 years. Well, quite, yeah. <laughs> that's um, the case with me. Uh, okay, briefly, maybe we've got time to just briefly touch on one more topic. I think it is unambiguously good news that Iceland Air has returned a profit for the first time in two years. 700,000 passengers in quarter three of this year, four times more than in the same period last year. So that is a pretty crude indication that things are getting better, is it not? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big number of people. We, we flew with, with Iceland Air here. Um, and always, always enjoy it. Uh, and it's interesting as well that, as was suspected, cargo was always something that was continuing to be flown by Iceland Air and other airlines as well, which I think kept them afloat, mm. kept some airlines from from going bust. But seven hundred thousand passengers, you could see that doubling again in a year, couldn't you, to get us back to the sort of numbers we were at before COVID? Yeah, I mean the numbers going up massively between Q three last year and Q three this year is. Not surprising in any way, but the fact that they were able to return to profit is, is yes. good for them. Mm. But uh, it shows that confidence cause... is returning. I mean, it, you say it's not surprising that the numbers increased. Uh, maybe not, but it's it's still reassuring and it's still pleasing to see that people are coming back to the country mm. uh, in increasing numbers. And of course, we have got play that wasn't existing yes. that, this time last year. So yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah. They're carrying passengers. The American Airlines, British Airlines. You know, the, the, it is a lot more normal. Yes. At, yes. at Kepler anyway. Mm. Hopefully it remains that way. I hope so. Um, I hope so. There is talk of, you know, 
threats from the COVID front. But mm. like we discussed earlier on, hopefully that won't. Well, you know, the last time I was in Iceland, you were the very last person that I spoke to. Um, and it all went horribly wrong after that. So I hope you haven't cursed <laughs> the next 18 months by meeting me again. <laughs> it's a different studio this time. It so is a different studio, that I'm is sure true. <laughs> we'll blame the room. Yeah, very true. Uh, on that note, I think we are just about out of time. Um, okay. The Week in Iceland, though, will be back with you again next week, Monday the 1st of November, on roof.is forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook, through the Roof app and your favourite podcast platform. That just leaves me to thank my guest today, Darren Adam. You're thank very you very welcome. much. Uh, we finished today's programme with a song by Lone, which is the powerhouse folk act, fronted by Valdemar Guðmundsson, famous from the band Valdemar. And this is their newest song called Earthquake. Bye for now. I've written down my thoughts I've written down my innermost thoughts Let me read some to you some to you I sometimes look ahead I picture us just laying in bed waiting for the kids to roar kids to roar Will all of this be here when morning comes Will time be ruthless to our perfect bodies? Are we bound to be a memory? I guess we'll never know. I only know that I will warm your feet tonight. If we're lucky, this might even last a 